0: look at Daniel 4 from verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counsels and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works who are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, good afternoon. If you are tuning in online, thanks for being with us. And for everyone who's made the time to come out and be in the building, great to be gathering with you as well. I hope you're enjoying moving through the book of Daniel as much as I've been enjoying going through it. And I think even though it's an ancient text, it's surprising how similar their situation is to ours. Um, but just before we get into that, a couple of things. Um, one, to double up on what Jacob was saying, uh, it'd be great to see you at the pub afterwards. Like he was saying, just make your way in there, make it as stress-free for the manager as possible. Not that he's stressed out or anything this morning, but it was, it was a great time to, uh, to hang out. Um, but also one other thing, as, um, as Gav moves off staff, obviously that, that leaves a big gap for us. And um, Anna has actually agreed to come on initially for the next three months to cover membership that Gav was doing and also to come on as a partial assistant on staff. And uh, she's been serving us for free a day a week being a part of our arduous staff meetings that just go on forever but also serving and blessing some of you you've experienced some of her ministry over this time and so um i just want to honor her at the moment so anna if you just want to come up as well this is just a that's just a small thank you for everything and, um, and needless to say, we're really looking forward to having her on and helping us out in the staff capacity as well. Um, so that should be great. And we'll, uh, we'll keep you up to date as things progress as we head into 2021. But this morning, we're looking at, at, at uh, David, uh, David, that's not a book of the Bible, testing you all, at Daniel chapter 4 and 5, two stories side by side that are placed side by side on purpose because they are a contrast to one another. And we're going to see two kings with two very different outcomes this afternoon. And really, the message of Daniel 4 and 5 is quite simple. God exalts the humble, and he brings low the proud. God exalts the humble, but he brings low the proud. And this is pertinent for us because we live in what David Brooks calls a big me culture. David Brooks is a journal and a political pundit in Washington. He put out a book several, maybe five, six years ago called The Road to Character. And he opens with this illustration. He said he was on the way home and he was listening to the radio station, which was called NPR. I don't know what that is in the States, but it sounds like the equivalent of ABC radio. It's old people radio. And he said this radio station was playing rebroadcasts. So going back into their archives and bringing out old broadcasts and replaying them. And on this particular day, the episode was called Command Performance, which was a variety show that was kind of sent out to troops during World War II to lift morale. And uh, and this particular one was from V-Day. So August 15, 1945, when they won the war. So this is a momentous broadcast. And he recollects what struck him was the tone of humility. There was no chest beating about it. Here's one quote from Command Performance. It says, We did not win this war because destiny created us better than all other people. I hope that in victory... We are more grateful than proud. And so he listened to that broadcast. In fact, it was so compelling that he sat there in his driveway and continued to listen to it. Then he turned off the car, went inside, and put on a football game. And as he put on the NFL, he said he saw a quarterback throw a pass to a wide receiver for a two-yard gain, after which the guy spiked the ball and did this kind of chest-beating, self-aggrandizing dance, and he made this comment. He said, it occurred to me that I'd just watched more self-celebration over a two-yard gain than I'd heard after the USA won World War II. That was the contrast for him. And he says, our culture has had a big shift over the 20th century. We've moved away from values like humility, and we've moved towards what he called Big Me culture. The idea that I am at the center, and the stats are there to back it up. He observes that there's been a shift in culture away from values like humility, and in 1950, the Gallup organization asked high schoolers if they considered themselves a very important person. And of all the people who completed the survey, only 12% said they would consider themselves a very important person. The same survey in 2005, and the number was 80%. Psychologists have a narcissism test. It contains statements like, someone should write a biography about me. I like to be the center of attention. Over the last 20 years, the median score has risen 30%. In a survey of young girls, nearly twice as many said that they would rather be a celebrity assistant to someone like Justin Bieber instead of president of Harvard. In 2007, 51% of young people said that becoming famous for nothing in particular was one of their primary goals in life. So this indicates a huge shift. We live in big me culture where I am at the center of all things. And of course, there would be no problem with that if it weren't so outrageously out of sync with reality. Because the truth is, whether you consider yourself religious or not, the objective fact is that I, me, or even us as humanity are very much nothing. We are at best a moat of dust caught in a sunbeam floating in a vast, expansive, unsympathetic universe. We are nothing. But this passage is going to go deeper into it and say, that's not the deepest reality. The deepest reality is that there is a huge God at the center of reality who loves us and is presiding over all of human history. And the absurdity of pride is that we would be contending for supremacy with that very God. That pride is when I try to put myself in the place of an almighty God, even though it's outrageous and absurd. And we're going to see in this passage two kings, both who contend for supremacy with God, and one who is humbled and submits humbly to God, and one who doesn't. And the outcomes for both of them are are vastly different. And so in this passage, this is where we're heading. We're going to see an arrogant king humbly submit to God. We're going to see an arrogant king not humbly submit to God. And then we're going to see that joy is found in humbling ourselves before a mighty God. So let's pray that he would do that work in our hearts this afternoon. Father, we praise you that you don't leave us in our foolishness, but you speak to us through your word. Father, we pray that as we sit here this afternoon, we would remember that as your word is opened, it's the creator of the universe speaking to us. You have written to us with art and with story so that we might hear and understand. And Father, may the gravity of what you have to say to us this afternoon hit us. May we see that you are great and that joy for us is found in right-sizing ourselves and you. And Father, may we see in this story that you humble the proud, but you raise up the humble. And Father, we pray that we would see this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, to give you some background to the book of Daniel, if you're just joining us this week, it's a book that you probably wouldn't be familiar with the cultural context, but it's an ancient story, and we're picking up the story really midway through the 6th century BC, and this group of people, the Israelites, have been taken from their homeland where Jerusalem was their capital, and the Babylonian empire that's been expanding and defeated all its enemies all the way down to Egypt, has taken the Israelite people away from their home, and replanted them in Babylon. So this is a group of people who are now a minority. They're living away from their homeland. They're frightened. They're afraid. They have no power over their future. And the book is written to them to encourage them to continue to follow God, knowing that He is fully in control. And this person, the story that we're following really is of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the greatest of the Babylonian kings. He expanded the empire far wider than any of the kings before him, or after him, as we'll find out today. And really, we're picking up in the, in the very last section of his life. Now, this story that we're reading today comes right in the last section of Nebuchadnezzar's life. Very little is known about the last 30 years of Nebuchadnezzar's life from sources outside the Bible. And this is meant to give us an insight into what is close to his last days. Now remember, at the time, there's no tabloids, there's no media. There might be rumors about what's happening in the palace. But this is meant to be an insider's look from Daniel, who was in the king's court. his insider's look into what happened into a pretty chaotic time in Babylon. And so we pick up the story in Daniel 4, 1 to 8. And if you notice, it's written by Nebuchadnezzar in the first person. This isn't the only time this happens in the Bible. So it's either a royal encyclical that's been included in the text, or the writer is writing as the first person Nebuchadnezzar to give us a, a close look at what's happening here. But listen to what happens at the beginning of this story. Daniel 4, 1 to 8. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace when I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon would be brought before me, so that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation." At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar after my, the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream. Now, this story follows the pattern of other dream accounts in Daniel, where it's building suspense. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream, it's made him afraid, he's concerned about it, he wants an interpretation or an understanding of it, and he's stressed, but we're not told what the dream is. The other thing that builds tension in the story is that he starts by saying, you know, praise be to the most holy God, the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews. But then he also says, I don't know if you noticed it, I called in Daniel, who I named Belteshazzar, after my own God. So something has happened here where he used to believe in a set of gods, but now he's giving praise to the one and only God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews. And so we're meant to be waiting. What happens in this story to explain this tension and so the tension continues to build but eventually the dream is revealed and this is the dream we're told that there is a tree in the midst of the earth and it's a massive tree it grows till it reaches the heavens it's visible to all of the earth it's abundant and all animals and life kind of find refuge in its shadow and at that point the dream's kind of pretty normal but then it goes full SBS and at this point a watcher comes in and says chop down the whole tree cut down every branch strip it bare but just leave the stump in the ground then put an iron band around the stump of the tree and then it says let him so using that the the male pronoun about a tree it says let him be soaked with the dew of heaven let his portion be with the beasts of the field let his mind be changed from a man's for seven periods of time And so there's more tension. What does this mean? There's this tree, it's abundant. Then this angel comes in and says, chop it down, but just leave the stump, put a belt around it. And now it's a person though, as as dreams often, you know, that's the way it often goes. And so we're waiting. What does this actually mean? And then we get the interpretation. Daniel comes in and he says to King Nebuchadnezzar, this dream you've had about the tree, that's you. You have grown mighty and more powerful than anyone else. It's like your power reaches to the very heavens. It's like everyone, all nations have come to get to, to prosper under your shadow. And he says, but you've grown massive. And the watcher was a messenger from God. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to go mad and you'll eat grass like a beast of the field. You completely lose your mind for seven periods of time. And then Daniel says in Daniel 4.25, till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Daniel says, you will be humbled until you realize that there's only one king on the throne of the universe, and it's God. And at that moment, when that happens, when you realize that you're not the greatest, but that he is, your mind will be restored to you, and your kingdom as well. It's very difficult to have that much power, and still remain in right proportion, isn't it? I don't know if you know the comedian John Mulaney... There's a skit where he talks about working with Mick Jagger. And he says people used to ask him all the time, what's it like working with Mick Jagger? Is he nice? That's the question they would ask. Is he nice? To which he says, no. But then maybe for him, he is. And he goes on to explain that for someone, he says it's very difficult to have 100,000 people or so screaming your name, paying money, doing anything they can to see you and still remain a humble human being. He says, at that point, it's very hard to not just consider yourself some kind of a demigod. And so he said, no, he's not nice, but maybe for that level of fame, he kind of is. I don't really know. It's very difficult to have that much power and influence, and yet to remain in your right mind about yourself and your right size, isn't it? Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar, It's very hard for you to right-size yourself right now. You're the most powerful man in the world. But I'm telling you, God is not impressed, and he will humble you. But Nebuchadnezzar can't do it. He can't hold on to right-sizing himself. And so look what happens in Daniel 4, 28 to 31. The story pulls out of first person, and we read this in the third person. Because as Nebuchadnezzar goes mad, it's like he blacks out. And the narrator kicks in at this point to tell us what happened to him during this time. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. He stands on top of his palace and he says, the kingdom, the power, and the glory belong to me. And God says, no, it doesn't. It will be taken from you. And his arrogance peaks and he loses his mind. And it's unclear in this story whether this was because of an illness or this was a miraculous intervention from God. But either way, he goes out of his mind. He's completely lost it. He has lost control. And it's almost like a blackout. And when he finally comes to when he finally makes an acknowledgement that God is the God of the heavens and the earth, then we read this at the end of Daniel. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And he praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and the and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and and splendor returned to me. My counsellors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of Heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The arrogant king is humbled and he acknowledges that there is no king but God alone and his health is restored to him and his kingdom along with it. Just as an aside, this was written to God's people during difficult times to remind them that great reversals of power right up at the very top echelons can happen at God's whim. I think it is a kind of arrogance on the part Of the church to assume that we know what the future is going to be like we live in what's fairly called a post-christian culture and the assumption is that things are just going to get worse and worse and worse and that may be the case christianity may move far beyond the margins and move to a time when there is an outbreak of persecution that could be the case but the truth is none of us really know and the truth of history is that governments and political powers go this way and then the other and take unexpected turns And God is saying through the book of Daniel that God is in control. He's always been with his people. And if he wants to, he can make great reversals at any time. His people need not be so prideful as to assume that we know how things are going to go. But here, it's clear that there's a great change. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and changes and acknowledges who God is. But the next story goes a completely different way. The next story is about the fall of Babylon, and it's about one king named Belshazzar. And I notice there's, there's a lot of very Aussie names in this passage. There's lots of, of shazars going around. But, uh, but Belshazzar and Belshazzar and all the like, this, this particular character in the book of Daniel was the reason for a long period that many people thought that Daniel was entirely fictional. It's a known fact that Nabonidus was the, the last Babylonian king. So when the Babylonian kingdom fell, he was the reigning king and people believed that this was a mistake in the text and that there was, there was no other evidence of there being any Belshazzar. But in 1854, when they were doing an excavation of a, of a temple of a god called Sin-ur, a moon god, there were cylinders discovered with prayers for Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar. And since that period, more and more evidence outside the Bible has picked up around the story of who Belshazzar was. And it's become clear that Nabonidus left Babylon for a decade and left his son, Belshazzar, as the reigning regent at the time. So when Babylon fell to the Persian Empire, it was him who was in charge. The biblical story here is accurate. And I say that and I mention it to give you confidence in Scripture, that we don't want to claim that things are, are not difficult to reconcile with historical fact if they are, but to know that sometimes it takes time before the Bible is vindicated as a true text. And if you're a follower of Jesus in the 19th century, it would have been an anxious wait till those scrolls were discovered. And there's story after story in other texts like Isaiah where that's happened. But here we have the fall of Babylon. And if you've heard the phrase, the writing's on the wall, or you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, those two phrases come from just this story. This is their origin. So we pick up the story in Daniel 5.1 and King Belshazzar is on the throne. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. I just said, what a party that is. He's like, I get a thousand mates around, y'all can just watch me and just neck a few. And that's, that's his party. But he was a king and you couldn't really say no. So he had to go. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, out of the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and wives and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. So just to let you know what's going on here, the king throws a party. And he says to his servants, I want you to get a couple of things for this party. You know those precious items from the Jewish temple, the thing that was really significant in that nation's history? I want you to bring them out like they're a bunch of red cups for a frat party. I want you to bring them out, and we're going to drink from them as though they were nothing to us. And while we're drinking from these cups that were meant to be devoted to the holy God who's supposed to rule the whole universe— well, we're going to drink out of them and we're going to praise our gods as a demonstration of their superiority. It's symbolic. He's doing this to make a statement. He's getting in the face of God here. When, when German forces stormed France and took it in almost less than two weeks... Hitler wanted the surrender signed in the same carriage that the Treaty of Versailles that Germany had to sign for surrender in the First World War. He wanted the same carriage to have it signed in as a demonstration of a great reversal of power in history. It was meant to be symbolic. It's like, this, this was meant to be the site of our humiliation. I'm going to use it to humiliate you. And here, Belshazzar is taking these things from the temple and drinking from them as a way of humiliating God's people and God Himself. And so while this is happening, the wine is obviously pretty strong, and people start seeing hands writing on walls. And there are some words that come up, and no one seems to be able to understand them. And so Belshazzar panics and he says, Can anyone get me someone who understands what this is? And the queen says, We've got this guy Daniel who seems to pop up every time there are visions. Why don't I go get him? And so she does, and he comes out, and the king says to him, Hey, if you interpret this for me, I promise you riches beyond measure, promotion, whatever you want. And Daniel says, you can keep your stuff because I've got a message for you and you're not going to like it. And Daniel then says this in to, uh, 24 to 31 it says, Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, mene mene tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Daniel says, this is the message for you. He says, your days are numbered. God is going to bring the Babylonian Empire to an end. He says, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You knew that Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before God. You knew about that story and you refused and you thumbed your nose at the God of the universe on purpose. He says, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You've been judged. And he says, tonight, the Persians are going to take their kingdom from you. Now, there are many conflicting accounts from stories outside the Bible about what happened, but the one thing they all share about the fall of Babylon was that there was no battle, that it was taken by surprise, in keeping with the account that we have here. And Belshazzar was the reigning king at the time, and his life was taken. He was humbled because he would not humble himself before God. He contended for supremacy with God, and he lost now, in reading this, you might be thinking, well, is God an egomaniac? Who's this guy who goes around just you know, toppling kings left, right, and center? But the truth is that he's not commanding them to do anything he considers to be beneath himself. Just consider this description of Jesus, the king of the universe, from Philippians 2. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus actually did have a reason to boast, unlike other kings. He actually did own the ground on which he walked. All things were created through him, by him, and for him. He had a reason to boast. And yet, how did he demonstrate his power and kingship while he walked among us? In service. It says he took on the nature of a servant. Not counting equality with God, something to be grasped hold of or to hold over people. He came in peace. He offered forgiveness for sinners. He loved and poured himself out for those around him and eventually bled out and died for the very people who were there to murder him. He was a king who modeled genuine humility. And it wasn't a matter of just right-sizing himself. He lived below his status in order to serve and save others. God is not an egomaniac. This is the king who humbles other kings because one day every knee will bow before him, whether king or common. And so the question that Daniel 4-5 is putting to us first and foremost is, Have you humbled yourself before God? The gospel means saying, I admit that I can bring nothing, that what God owes me is judgment, but instead he offers me forgiveness to say, I'm a sinner deserving no mercy, and yet God in Jesus, you have poured out your mercy on me. And the question this passage is asking is, have you humbled yourself before him? Because there really are two options. Either you will humble yourself, or one day you will be humbled before him. Every knee will bow. And the hard thing is, in a a Western democracy like ours, it's easy to believe that there is no reigning authority over the universe that I will ever have to be held account to. Even just think about, I don't know if you saw at the beginning of lockdown, that footage of, um, I don't know, it was like a media scrum with some kind of COVID update with Scott Morrison. And he's on the, you know, kind of on the footpath near a lawn and so old mate comes out, and he's just looking a mess of a man. He's disheveled. He's in his you know, dressing gown or whatever. And he starts yelling, get off my lawn. I've just seeded it. Like people have seen this, this footage of what happened, right? Yeah. And you just think, wow, what, what a modern miracle that you could, you could shout out to the Prime Minister of Australia to get off your lawn. I mean, it was, it was more to the media, right? But the way they kind of showed it made it look like he was kind of telling the Prime Minister to get off his lawn. But you can do that, and there's no consequence. That's fine. And it's partly because we we have a a political system that is built on a Judeo-Christian worldview, that no one is better than anyone else, and so you should be able to criticize politicians and the like. But it can slowly build in you the sense that like, yeah, there probably is no one or no thing in the universe that I couldn't tell to get off my lawn. And it's hard to believe that one day, every knee will bow before Jesus. And there is mercy for those who have asked forgiveness and judgment for those who haven't. In this passage in Daniel 4 and 5, we see a king who humbles himself and one who refuses. And their fates are very different before God. The first question is, have you humbled yourself? And the second one is, if you you have, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you living towards humility? See, life is definitely geared towards big me. As As one sort of author put it, The default position, so the the position you'll find yourself in without any kind of reflection or any effort, the default position is to believe that my immediate needs, wants, and desires should set the priorities of people around me. That is, technology makes us feel like little g-gods who are able to gratify whatever desire we have at any point in time, no matter what. Have you ever considered the fact that you live a life that is probably more luxurious than most of the kings described in the Bible? So if they wanted music, of course they would request it, but someone had to go and get the musicians together and get it, and it was a ragtag bunch. So they finally got to the king's court. So if he wanted to hear a song that he had in his head, an earworm, it would take you know, at least several minutes to do it. And that's the most powerful person on the planet. That's how quickly they could get music. But right now, you want to hear any song in the entire world pretty much, at the moment you want to hear it, it's yours. Now over time, that builds in you the belief then I am, I'm, you know, I'm not God, of course, but, you know, I'm at least halfway there. It puts us very much in the center of our own universe. And we start to think of ourselves as much bigger than we really are, much more powerful than we really are. And we believe our own verdicts about life and about ourself. And the strange thing is that pride that is contending for supremacy with God can lead us sometimes to an over-inflated view of self, I don't know if you've noticed this, but pride can also lead you to a deflated view of yourself. The gospel is to agree with God about his verdict on you. That is, you're a sinner, but you have been washed clean, and now you are a loved child of God. And oftentimes, our self deprecation is a refusal to admit his verdict on us. If you say I'm worth it, I'm worthless, that's incorrect. Who are you to defy God? My body is contemptible. False. Who are you to cast a verdict against God? That's not his verdict on you. Bad things happen to me because I'm a bad person. False. That's not the gospel. It's a matter of pride to say my estimation of myself is superior to God's. It's contending for supremacy with God. Pride infects all of life. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to ruthlessly cut it out to do everything to be like our Savior and to know the joy that He knew. And so here are two things that I want to encourage you to do to grow in humility over this week. The first is to start every day considering the greatness of God. If you've been around in church for a while, you have heard something about reading the Bible daily and it gets thrown around so much that it sounds like a kind of a a habit, like stretching or having breakfast or something like that. It's kind of a task that you just do routinely. But what it really is, is recalibrating your universe to put the God of the universe at the center every day. And the reason it's so strategic and important to do it at the very first thing is before all the other things rush in that remind you that you're the center of the universe, that first and foremost you you acknowledge that God is the center of all things. And so I encourage you, if you haven't picked up the readings to get on to that, the psalm I was reading this morning, Psalm 145 said, God, your greatness is unsearchable. That is, no human mind will ever get to the bottom of it. We attack every day like an adventure into God's word, knowing that in here we find the very treasures of who God is. And that's one side of things. And then the other side would be this. To spend less time on social media and entertainment that kind of reinforce the false reality that I am the center of the universe. Social media, as we bounce through it, again, just reverberates our own opinions back to us. Or it's something where we're looking for feedback on who I am or what I'm like. And again, just puts me right in the center of things. Spending more and more time on entertainment just makes me feel like whatever I need, want, desire right now is the most important thing in the universe when it's not. So to put God in his right place and to put other things out. And then the last one is this. To thank someone deeply who has served you in a Christ-like manner. The message of Daniel 4 and 5 is that rulers will either humble humble themselves or be humbled. But the truth is, by God's blessing, there have been some leaders in your life who have loved you and served you in a manner that is upright and godly. I mean, even today we get to celebrate with with Gav and his family um, a little bit of their ministry and their time serving and loving us. But it shouldn't take a farewell before we actually think to deeply thank people who have served us and loved us in a Christ-like manner. And so I'm going to take a moment to do that now I want to thank Jacob and Sarah for how much they've served and loved this church over this year. And they came with us from so right at the beginning of the year when the bird campus closed down. They have led a small group all the way through that time and into now, even even while having no sleep and a first child and all of that, and have loved and served the people around them and me as their friend as well. I just want to honor that. For Anna, who's been serving us for free on her own time, because she loves Jesus' church and loves you people dearly, for Leah, who's here on staff, whose job, part of her job is compliance and 2020 is not the year to be over compliance. It is it, like, it's just blown up every single week, but she's continued to love and serve people. For the elders here at church, Cam, who's the elder who serves here at 4 p.m. and the integrity and love with which he's led. Also for our interns, so CJ and Tom have put in so much time and Tim's not here this afternoon, I don't think. No, he was before, but who have put in so much time each week to help us out in this year. It's been massive. I encourage you to thank someone deeply? Maybe start with your MC leaders who've loved you and served you through a really difficult time to lead an MC. But whatever it is, we're called to humility because if it wasn't beyond Jesus, it's certainly not beyond us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you show us what you are like. That you are humble. You sent Jesus as a servant to suffer and die even for his enemies. Father, we just praise you that you love us, that you are with us, and that even through a year like this, that you uphold and sustain us. Father, may we just grow joyfully humble. May we not big ourselves up. May we not find ourselves all out of proportion to your universe and your greatness. But may we find joy in knowing that we are just children of God, loved and served by you, our King. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.